This is Women Who Rock, a podcast promoting female musicians and artists. Today, I am joined by Amy Viola, who wields a viola and a loop pedal to write her brand of indie folk music. Amy, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Matt. It's great to be chatting with you. We were having a little bit of a chat before we started about the fact that you had been in Nashville last year. Mm. I think that it's kind of my, if I chose a city to live in that wasn't Sydney, it would be Nashville. Mm. Um, I've been there a couple of times and I really enjoy it. You had a bit of a whirlwind tour. Can you tell us about your six days in Nashville last year? Yeah, I I had just a brief um, opportunity to stop via Nashville. I was over there to do a summer camp in songwriting at Berklee College of Music in Boston and everyone at Berkeley in Boston is wanting to head to Nashville as soon as they finish their songwriting course. So I was pretty stoked just to go there for six days, six nights. Um, and yeah, I honestly just spent pretty much my whole time seeing as many live gigs as I possibly could. I feel like I kind of subliminally knew that, you know, the world was going to shut down and there was going to be no more live gigs happening because I got my, got my feel. Yeah, I had to cram it all in. But I have to say, like, I I really was blown away by the level of musicianship and the variety of um, styles of people that were playing um, there. And a number of my friends that I gig with back home just kind of noticed that it seemed to kind of seep in subconsciously. Like, I, I felt like it really made a positive impression on my own music making when I came back home, just to be surrounded by so many great musicians for a week, seeing them do their thing and just enjoying it and loving it. It's an interesting melting pot, isn't it? Because mm. stereotypically, I think, I mean, like on the tourist strip, it's all country Americana, but there in all different pockets of Nashville, I think most musical genres are represented. Yeah, I mean, I I spent maybe one hour on the main strip of Broadway, but the rest of the time just hitting up the indie clubs to see mm. uh, small bands. And some nights I was able to hit up two or three shows a night, uh, small little crowds. Even um, I think it was uh, I was there for uh, Independence Day, July 4th, and noticed that our very own CW Stone King was playing at a tiny little venue just a half an hour out of Nashville. And I, you know, took myself there because the opportunity to see him play in a small club, I'd, I'd previously seen him play with hundreds of people there. But you just see him win the crowd over, um, you know, people that are just used to incredible musicians playing all the time. We we, we hold our own here, but over there um, people are used to it. And, you know, he, he's just an excellent musician. And it was just super cool to be able to, hunt out those little venues and those little opportunities and that that's really where I spent most of my time. I actually saw him at the Opera House. Oh, cool. So we, we probably had a very different experience. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, I'd done the 200 strong and and, I, and there was literally five of us in the bar and, and him. Oh, uh, my but, God. But, yeah, I know, but people just kind of came in as if they kind of knew that there was some awesome stuff going on. 
Um, mm. But that that's natural for you. You never know. Like if you're if you're in the Station Inn, which was my favourite venue uh, of the week, I kept on going back there for some really good bluegrass. You never know if Alison Krauss is going to walk through the door and just play a violin. Like it's that's that kind of town. It's mm. extraordinary. Mm. I kind of think, and I've kind of said this on the podcast before, it, it that town or that city more than any city. I feel as though if you gave a random stranger a guitar and asked them to play a G chord, mm. the amount of people that could do it in Nashville would be higher than anywhere else in the world. <laughs> Damn straight. And then they'd know a bunch of people that could do it even better than them. It was just like yeah. a little network. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so that was last year. A little mm. bit more recent than that was I think the last show live show you played was at the Inland Sea of Sound. Yeah. Um, yeah. That that's was in gotta... March. Yeah, that's got to be one of the last festivals that ran before coronavirus took over. And Does it was, seem like an age away? feels like forever ago. I can't believe that I got that lucky to have that as my last show. Um, you know, Missy Higgins and Killing Heidi were headlining there and it was just a real rush to play as things were shutting down around us. Um, it's a great little vest festival and hopefully it picks, it picks up again and keeps going when this all finishes. So in not being able to play shows for quite a while, I've seen that you, you've actually been pretty active uh, with what you've been doing online. Uh, so I saw through your Facebook that you sort of have been moving your teaching uh, online through your online studio. Yeah. I'm interested to hear what are the kind of the, what are the challenges that you've had in doing that and I guess having to adapt that approach in such a short period of time. Yeah, well, you know, we all have kind of teaching as a side gig and interestingly, um, you know, I trained previously as a classical violist and worked, you know, in orchestras for 15 years and I, since I've made a bit of a crossover into this contemporary world using looping um, and, and various, you know, contemporary techniques, interestingly when coronavirus hit and I needed to find some teaching online, people started to pop up from all over the place wanting to learn the techniques that I'd been just practicing myself and figuring out, you know, how to play the violin and the viola a little in a little bit more of an unusual way. And so I've found people being able to learn from me from around Australia without me needing to be there. So it's actually been a really positive experience. Um, I haven't relied on it as my main income of source, but it's been a positive experience to connect with other people that are interested in learning how to do what I've just kind of had to figure out how to do on, on stage. And yeah, I guess it would have been, had the world been normal, you probably would not have really connected with a lot of those people. No, not at all. Like you wouldn't mm. normally have your energy towards teaching. And that's actually been one of the really cool things I've noticed. Um, some people that I love and follow, like Laura Marling, you know, they're just stuck in their house. So they jump onto Instagram live and they just give you a little lesson on how to do one of their songs. It's brilliant. I've been, yeah, I've seen those. She is such a good mm. guitarist. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, also um, who's at Ben Folds, you know, happened to be stuck in an apartment in Sydney at the time and, and he's just there doing his Patreon live feeds every night just to try and make some income back up but he's got nothing else to do so we're getting yeah. the best of it <laughs> yeah yeah um, you mentioned before that you are classically trained mm. uh, but you're using the viola in a, a very novel way I think um, mm. in a very different space mm. I'm interested to know because yeah I mean I am 100% not a classical musician but I, I understand that I guess the performance is a more high pressure 
situation where everything mm. is about getting everything sort of note perfect. Yeah. From your perspective, how does the the performance headspace compare between playing a classical composition and then doing this project where you're using a viola to do looping um, music and instrumentals for a folk style genre? Mm, that is such a good question. The performance headspace is almost, you know, it's totally upside down. It's an upside down world. I, um, you know, my background with classical training and I started when I was four in the Amy B system and then, you know, finished my performance degree at the Sydney Conservatorium, ready to join an orchestra, which I, I never really wanted to do. Um, like I've been trained in a very high performance, high anxiety um uh, arena and I suffered from quite serious performance anxiety and when I made the switch into contemporary playing I knew that I needed to surround myself with people that had been doing the contemporary stuff their whole lives and they were ironically kind of my friends in the music world out here in the central west who when they get on stage they just have the time of their life and they enjoy themselves and they have a beer and they chat with the audience and life is good and it was just such a different like world to me because still when I was getting up on stage playing, I was bringing with myself all the anxieties of my previous classical training, even to the extent where um, I had music in front of me that wasn't actually notes. It was just instructions on what to do when with my loop pedal. And, I, you know, I kind of needed to get that going as trial by fire because using a loop pedal live on stage comes with its own set of challenges. But... I realized that I was bringing I was bringing in some of the old worries about trying to get something exactly right the way I wanted it and a friend of mine said to me do you know what it's your music don't care. who cares about whether you play the wrong note or not it's your music they're there to hear what's really coming out of you so I've I've actually been on a journey since I made the switch to try and let go of my you know internal training that is is so rigid to get to a point where I can work with what is quite a rigid piece of technology, the loop pedal, and be very relaxed about the outcome and not worry too much about when the loop pedal, you know, does something that it's not supposed to do, which happens, um, or I make a mistake, which is more the case of what happens, and I go with the flow. And, I mean, honestly, I do almost, in almost every show I have to start a loop again because I do everything live. I, I don't ever pre-record a thing. And do you know what? The audience love to see me be human on stage and make mistakes. So it, it's just a different world, um, a different type of connection, I think, with the audience too. I think it adds to some of the majesty of the live performance, right? Mm, yeah. That like, something can go wrong mm. but you kind of just now you're going in a slightly new direction that mm. no other show is going to have that. Absolutely. And it is really about it's 50% about what you're giving out to the audience but it's also what the audience is giving back to you as well and there should be a loop going on there, um, you know, of what energy you're receiving and what energy you're giving out. And like I've experienced um, – that once where I, you know, I, I played at um, Chicks with Picks open mic night and, you know. The, at the townie. The, at the townie, yeah. Love and the I, townie. Yes, amazing <laughs> venue. And, I, and it was just an open mic night. No one knew who I was and I started to play and I'd never gotten a vibe from an audience quite like, quite like that and haven't since um, where they were just totally on board with all of my music and it was a beautiful, beautiful thing. Whereas the classical world and the classical audience are there with an expectation that you're going to play the notes that have been written 
you know, they were written a few hundred years ago, you're going to play them pretty much the way that they expect you to play them or better. And if you don't play them better, then they're disappointed. So it's this kind of, it's it's totally, totally different. Uh, and it's been an interesting bridge to walk across. I feel as though, I guess, most of my 20s, I was listening to blues music and loud punk rock. Mm. But over the last, like, year, I've been, I found my radio on Classic FM yeah. more than ever. <laughs> nice. It's been like a slow transition. Yeah. Uh, I'd never really thought about it until you said that. I guess that for the people who are the like upper, upper echelon of performers in that realm, mm. they must be under so much pressure every every time they perform. No, it's interesting you say that because I I think I've come to understand that those top 1% of performers in the classical world have somehow made the music that they're being expected to play perfectly, they've somehow made it their own. And when they play, it's as if they have created it and are improvising it in that moment. And there's Mm. that magic going on. And so, you know, then at the end of the day, like when I play on stage, I might not be playing, you know, uh, the Bartok Viola Concerto, but I'm playing from the heart. And that can include, you know, any kind of a sound that is really telling the story that, I'm trying to tell on stage and to me now that's actually all that matters. I don't often do too many fireworky things with my instrument. If I ever get booked to do a classical gig, I prefer to do music that I know I can kind of consume and make it my own because I don't I don't even like to play notes that I feel that feel alien to me if that makes sense. I guess that re- requires a level of mastery to have a composition that was written 300 years ago and play every note as it was written, but people still instinctually know that it's you who did that because you have your own stamp that you're putting on it. Totally. It's total mastery of an instrument and it is insane amount of hours, you know, and and it, it is just so difficult to get there. And at the end of the day, for me, I was just sick of playing other people's notes. I honestly had had some real things that I wanted to say and I wanted to express them and that's what I do now with my music. In saying that, it kind of reminded me of, I heard a podcast with Tony Hawk recently, mm-hmm. which is not related to classical music, but he was saying that <laughs> the, the, like the best, best, best skaters, mm. if you see a silhouette of them skating mm. with no features, you would know who it is. Wow, because of their posture. Because they have, they just, they're doing something unique that only the kind of top upper level people are able to do in that way. Yeah. Um, and my weird brain just thought about that when we were talking about classical musicians. <laughs> That's super cool because my weird brain then just realized that, you know, since I've started creating my music, I realized the people that are doing it really successfully have a unique story that they're being very transparent about and they're creating. I mean, you can call it a brand in a music business sense, but they have a real clear voice around the stories they're telling, the way they're delivering it, um, and they're very just uniquely themselves. You know, I don't think I could get on stage and not play the viola in some way in my set because that is where I've come from. Um, I've always wanted to sing, but the viola is my my voice in string form. So I think that uniqueness in any kind of creative art is really where your um it's kind of where your voice can really truly resonate Mm. well speaking of the way you play the viola let's listen to some music of you playing the viola 
Great. I'd like to take a track of one of your originals. This is by Amy Viola. It's called uh, Dividing Me. The track that we just heard was called Dividing Me by Amy Fiola. We are in pretty interesting times and I understand, Amy, that you have been working on, I guess, multiple businesses in the area of mindfulness. So I'm interested to hear about the project that you're working on and also if you're incorporating music into the teaching of mindfulness. Yeah, that's such a good question. I um you know, when I started to do the Amy Viola project, um, on the side I 
wanted to start teaching people um, about mindfulness and meditation that had helped me a lot through, um, you know, through some really difficult years in my life that partially led me to switch from classical to contemporary and really start just singing the songs that I wanted to sing. Um, and while I was uh, doing the Amy Viola project, I had a weekly meditation class here in the Central West that I called Music Meditation. And um, I had never taught meditation before and it started with me kind of sitting down and reading for a, from a script. I had about 10 students to begin with. And we'd do a meditation together and then I would just play my viola for the class and there wouldn't be any notes that I'd need to play. I wouldn't have any agenda with the music. The music was just there for me to calm people and get them to quieten and listen to the vibration of the viola and kind of sink in with that constant sound so that they could kind of go deeper with their own meditation practice. And I had an agenda with that class um, in addition to, you know, providing a beautiful space for people to meditate and experience something a bit different. Um, I really needed to heal the kind of trauma I'd had as a classical musician. I needed to I needed to play in front of people and them to not judge me and, in fact, for them to just really enjoy it for what it was. So I ended up some nights just honestly playing only five notes over and over, just long sounds for, you know, 20 minutes. And it was one of the most healing things I've ever done. Um, and that was the moment that I decided that I wanted to get into this area more of teaching mindfulness and meditation. And I uh, was teaching in schools at the time and the local schools heard that I was a meditation teacher and asked me to bring it into the schools. Um, and that was amazing to be able to give that to the kids. They just were such naturals at it <laughs> to be able to sit quietly and breathe. You know, it was almost like they desperately needed the opportunity to do that um, in mm. a school setting, you know, because they're so overwhelmed at school. There's so much going on. And I was just about to start that business um, full time when coronavirus hit and the school shut down. And I did what every, you know, business owners had to do in coronavirus and did a big pivot and uh, found um, found a new way of delivering my message, um, which I'm just in the research phases of now. Uh, you know, I've, I've pretty much interviewed as, as many people that have been willing to talk to me in my Facebook network around the area of personal development and what they're struggling with and what they're doing that's helping them. And it has moved away from the topic and area of mindfulness to into this concept of emotional resiliency um, because who, who would have thunk that there would be a world crisis like this and people that I've spoken to, probably about 40 interviews now, there are either people that are just absolutely thinking they are just keeping their heads above the surface trying to pay rent or, you know, they've lost their job and it's just absolutely horrific for them. And then there are other people that are flying. They are either, you know, life hasn't changed too much for them because they worked from home or they, they were pretty much introverts or they're running with this new need for, um, you know, information online and connection online and, uh, you know, they're, they're jumping online like myself to, to create a new situation for themselves where they can help other people and that's, that's what I'm doing currently now. So for this new component, 
would it be? Because it seems as though the thing that you were doing with the kids in the school, it's almost like a like musical therapy. Does it sort of um, – mm. is there an overlap between what you were doing and musical therapy? I actually um, – it does sound like musical therapy, my meditation class. By the time I got to the schools, I was doing mindfulness only. There was no music component. Okay. Um, and I did consider music therapy at one stage. Um, but what I'm actually really passionate about is um, the the very simple tools that mindfulness teaches for us to gain control of our mind and focus. Um, and they are very simple tools. They're no different from learning how to read or learning how to ride a bike. And we actually already know how to be mindful and how to be focused, but we're not taught how to do it intentionally and consciously. And so I was teaching those simple skills and I'm obviously teaching them because I myself had suffered from anxiety and performance anxiety and they're the tools that I've used to get myself out of a out of a difficult place to be an expressive musician. But also then it's developed into me teaching more and more of the human potential skills that I've discovered through my own research and the um, conferences I've, I've attended and I've done a lot of workshops and you know I've done the fire walk with Tony Robbins and I I have several coaches in my life that I speak to every week in different areas in life and in business and it's just a real passion of me of mine now to not only go into mindfulness but to go into other um, other resourceful tools to expand who I am and to to be kind of the best version of myself. Mm. It sounds like you're really uh, trying hard to adapt to the troubling times that we're living through yeah I felt the real calling actually Matthew when it happened I felt a real calling to speak to everybody and just to sit on the phone with them and hear about what's going on for them and chat with them about you know what was working what wasn't working and really feel like I had my finger on the pulse of at least my network which is limited admittedly but at least to know what was going on with people because I wouldn't have had that otherwise you know I had this feeling that people weren't doing well but I've been just absolutely blown away by the resiliency of certain people in my network, particularly, you know, for example, principals of schools in my network jumped on calls with me and they had to handle an entire school community in this, in the matter of a few weeks, the schools shut down and they had to rely on, you know, technology to deliver the curriculum and there were so many expectations from them. And those individuals are are incredible. They they just do incredible things. So I, I was very inspired by it too. It is time for the segment where it's called Tell Me a Thing and I have a list of seven topics. I ask you to choose one and tell me something about it. The topics are musical equipment, recording equipment, poetry, Patti Smith, punk rock, death and politics. So Amy, can you please tell me a thing? Well, it was close between Patti Smith and musical equipment. But I'm going to go with musical equipment. Um, when I'm on stage, a lot of people don't realise that it's not just me and my viola. It's also a very important instrument. That is my RC300 loop pedal. And um, this piece of equipment is actually integral to me being a solo artist. Um, I wouldn't be able to do what I do without it. And interestingly, at Chicks With Picks, uh, not, I guess maybe more than a year ago, 
we had a loop a looping evening all the looping artists from the kind of community there all got together and most of us had this rc300 loop pedal it's a boss loop pedal that has three separate channels and i was playing away and doing my solo thing and all of a sudden my loop pedal um it either skipped a channel or something happened but the entire song just kind of came crashing down and at least two of the other musicians in the audience yelled out at me and said yep it happened to me last week <laughs> so it made me start to think you know perhaps my loop pedal actually is a, a musical artist in itself there's some kind of um, prerogative that it has and it's it's operating of its own accord so I have to approach it with utmost respect every time I'm on stage um, when I work with it because I feed it live and it feeds it back to me and it sometimes chooses not to feed the things back to me that I want so <laughs> yeah <laughs> what was the so it's a really integral part of what you do was mm. there a catalyst that made you think that you want to do that or was or yeah like what was what was the kind of moment where you thought I want to be using this looping technology interestingly the catalyst was my perfectionist mindset of wanting to be in total control of everything that was going on on the stage and I wasn't oh, okay. ready I wasn't ready to start working with people so I, I picked up the looper and started to loop with myself. Um, and now since then I have a band and, you know, I've been just absolutely um, hammering them and making them play with my loop pedal. And I think after my last show at Inland Sea of Sound, I decided that I was going to let my loop pedal go because I have a pretty good drummer and a pretty good bass player that means I don't need my loop pedal anymore. <laughs> Things evolve, I guess. Uh, that's the way it's got to be, right? <laughs> Um, well, Amy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and telling us your story. I think it's quite uplifting to hear people adapting to the times that we're living in. So, yeah, thanks, thanks for coming on the show. You're so welcome. It's been lovely to chat with you, Matt. Thanks for asking me on. Did you think you found me in this pretty perfect... Women Who Rock is proudly produced in the Sydney studios of Do As You Are 107.3.